1: All right. Welcome back, everybody. We have a lot to get to, a lot of news, of course. That's typically the case, and this past week has definitely been no different. We have the all-encompassing news. Really, it's what has consumed the news cycle for the past couple days, which is the social unrest, the riots, the protesting, all of that type of stuff happening. There's lots of news like Target closing 175 of their stores after riots. So this started off with like five stores. Then they expanded it to 32 stores being closed. Now it's 175 stores across the country that they've decided to close. And Target is headquartered in Minnesota where all of this event happened. So that's going on right now. We also have news that Twitter and President Trump are having this tit-for-tat battle with each other. It started off with Twitter putting a special link underneath one of Trump's tweets a fact check link about something he tweeted. This is like a special embedded link underneath his tweet. Now, President Trump thought this was very unfair. He said that companies like Twitter shouldn't be fact checking politicians. So this in and of itself brings up a pretty interesting debate of the, the role of social media companies. President Trump has gone as far to sign an executive order removing the broad protections against social media platforms. So, This is expanding to a a bigger debate, a bigger thing. We have people like Mark Zuckerberg getting involved, saying that he disagrees with the stance that Twitter has. He's more in line with the stance that Trump has, where he thinks that social media platforms shouldn't be fact-checking politicians. So this has been an interesting debate. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We also have AT&T releasing their new streaming service, HBO Max. So this is their new offering, their new catalog. It's like HBO plus all their other content put onto one platform. I'm going to give you my initial reactions about it, my first impressions. So, I'll look at that and then we have lots of questions and emails to get to as well. So, it should be a good show. Now, first of all, before jumping into those news items, I want to do a quick portfolio update. This is my personal portfolio. The current value is 94,000. It's on a platform called M1 Finance. If you want to look at my holdings and all the different companies I have, there's a link in the description that easily allows you to do that. But this is a portfolio where for the first two years of investing, I started in about 2018, right at the tail end of 2017. You couldn't really do too much wrong. Mostly the stock market was going up. The portfolio entered into the green right away. So I was in the gains quite a bit, and then the gains continued to roll in. The first year, I was up quite a bit. I think I was up like four or $5,000. And then the second year, I was up $12,000 by the end of the second year. And during this time, I started with like hundred dollars And then I started putting in a couple thousand dollars a month. That's pretty much how this grew. It got to a point where I had $80,000 in it. 12,000 of it was gains. So I had $80,000, $12,000 of that being gains. Then we ran into the coronavirus. Now, this is the first point where my portfolio hit some trouble. This was something where I was way off on the coronavirus. I thought it was going to be not too big of a deal. I come from a background where... Most of the time I hear about these type of things, different flus on different parts of the earth. We have things like the bird flu, we had SARS, we had Ebola, uh, we had swine flu, we had all of these things, and they did have some effect in other places, but they really didn't manifest themselves to be that big of an issue in the US. Really, they, they weren't too much of an issue. They didn't affect the economy anywhere like the coronavirus did. So from my background, just with those experiences, I looked at the news and I thought, they're probably doing the same thing the news always does. They're just, you know, everything's a big deal. Everything's breaking news. They're probably overstating the effect the coronavirus will have. That was my initial thought. I thought that it was going to be a much less big deal than the news was making it out to be. Well, little did I know, it was a much bigger deal than the news was even making it out to be. When it came over to the U.S., obviously, we all know what happened. It brought down the stock market pretty fast, and it brought down the economy even quicker. In one month, my portfolio went from a value... Of about eighty thousand dollars to sixty thousand dollars, I lost twenty thousand dollars of value in thirty days. All my gains for the previous two years wiped away within one month that 's how quick that happened Now. this is where you get to the point where you 're thinking well i 'm now in the red by quite a bit, like over ten thousand. All the news during this time period when things were down right here were really bad there 's lots of people day in and day out on CNBC saying proceed with caution, you should probably move to cash, you know, you shouldn't be invested in these type of things, telling you to pretty much sell out. That's the the type of message you get. But of course, if you stayed invested, you're rewarded for that. The stock market started to recover. And during this time, I was buying the whole dip. So I continued to invest during this whole time. And now we got to a point where both my my new deposits, plus the losses that I made back, I'm now in the green by $2,000. And the portfolio values $94,000 total. So we've pretty much, with this portfolio, come full circle. I went from being in the red by quite a bit to being back in the green. Now, I'm not the only one that's had this happen. I put up a poll two months ago, so this was about the middle of March, of how many of you are in the red and how many of you are in the green. I did a poll just saying, be honest, how many of you are in the red right now? The stock market just dropped down 30%, so I was assuming it's a lot. It was overwhelming. 91% of us were in the red. That was with over 8,000 people responding. 91% were in the red. Then if we look, I did the same exact poll, the same exact question one day ago. So two months later, how many of you are in the red? How many of you are in the green? 61% of you are now in the green, 39% in the red. So this is something where the people that just held on and kind of rode this out, you're probably in the green right now or you're really close. I read through a lot of these comments and people are saying, you know, I'm not in the green right now, but I'm really close. I'm I'm like within three or 4% and I've made back most of the losses that i had so the people that held on to their holdings were rewarded during this recovery a lot of you got back into the green just by holding or buying during the downturn now as far as what my plans are now i say this often i can't predict the market i'm not good at doing that i invested a lot right before this last downturn i was putting a lot of money in and then we had a huge downturn so i'm not good at predicting the market by any means but i have so far been okay at staying invested I had some people telling me, when things get scary, you're going to sell out of your portfolio. That hasn't happened yet. And I think that I could do it again. If we have another downturn, if the stock market falls 30 or 40%, you know, if some people's predictions come true, I think I'll be okay. I think I can stay invested. This is actually a confidence boost. If I can do it one time, I know I can do it again. If you guys stayed invested during this recent downturn, then you can do it again. And for the people that sold out during this, if you had kind of a panic, you sold out, you weren't expecting to, that's something that you can learn from. There's no shame in it. You can just learn from it. Try to make your portfolio a little bit more conservative, maybe allocate a little bit more to bonds, hedge your bets a little bit more. There's things that you can do to make it so that you have a portfolio you might be able to hang on to easier during the next downturn. So either way, you can learn a lot from this. So other than that, I don't have too much to update. Most of my holdings are basically the same as the previous episodes. If you want to look at them, again, there's a link in the description. You can click around in the portfolio and take a look at what I have. But it's basically all the same. No companies since the previous episode have cut their dividends or anything like that. And I continue to get these dividends. If I go over to this screen here, I got paid from LTC Properties, from Welltower, Royal Bank of Canada, you know, $17, 24 dollars $9. $15.54 from Avvi. So these continue to go in. The huge majority of my companies continue to pay dividends. There's only been a handful, really like two or three that have really lowered or cut their dividends. So, so far, it's been pretty good. This portfolio's held up well. If I go to the past 30 days, I've earned $325 in dividends. That's money these companies are still paying despite the environment. It's been going good. I'll let you guys know if I do any big purchases, with these holdings i'm going to be doing research over the next couple of days on what companies i really want to buy so i'll let you know which ones i land on now moving on to some news i first want to talk about this executive order that president trump has done to target social media companies
0: uh, they've had unchecked power to censor restrict edit shape hide alter virtually any form of communication between private citizens or large public audiences There's no precedent in American history for so small a number of corporations to control so large a sphere of human interaction.
1: So he highlights that they control a lot of speech. Facebook, YouTube, Google, there's really a handful of companies. Like four or five, these are the big tech companies that almost all communication on the internet happens through these companies. So he's saying there's a concentration of power with these few companies that control a lot of speech, but this really isn't the core of the issue. The core of the issue is what he highlights right here.
0: The choices that Twitter makes when it chooses to suppress, edit, blacklist, shadow, ban are editorial decisions, pure and simple. They're editorial decisions. In those moments, Twitter ceases to be a neutral public platform and they become an editor with a viewpoint. And I think we can say that about others also, whether you're looking at Google, whether you're looking at Facebook and perhaps others.
1: So that's pretty much the core of the argument right there. That sums it up. He's saying that these companies have been enjoying the legal protections of being a neutral platform. So they're a platform that doesn't have any particular political view. They just regulate their platform. And that way, they're not liable for the content that people upload. So they've been enjoying that legal benefit, but he's saying they're not acting as a neutral platform. Instead, they're selectively enforcing rules, they're selectively fact-checking and shadow-banning people, and they're pushing specific political narratives by doing that. So that's what he's alleging here with this executive order. If this executive order was really to remove these protections, this provision in Section 230, it would completely destroy these companies. Facebook, Twitter, these companies that are really driven by user-generated content, by people posting comments, it would completely destroy these companies. Let me read one part of Section 230. It says, quote, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. It's a little confusing, but it explains it here. It says, in other words, online intermediaries that host or republish speech are protected against a range of lawsuits that might otherwise be used to hold them legally responsible for what other users say and do. So pretty much, this is a liability issue. If President Trump has this executive order really go through and it removes these broad protections, he would be making it so that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube essentially have to extraordinarily regulate every single comment, look over every single one of them to make sure they're not liable for it. Otherwise, they would just completely remove the comment sections altogether. That's probably what they would do. It would be treated like when YouTube removed the comment section of any kid's video. Now, I don't think that this would be a good thing. Having it so that every comment section is removed from every website would not be a good thing in my opinion. I think it's very interesting to read through the comments, see what people think on particular subjects. It's a way for people to voice their opinion that can't otherwise do it. So I don't like the outcome of what would happen if we remove these protections. Having no comment section would be a pretty bad thing for these companies. I think it would destroy a lot of them. I don't think that they could monitor that many comments. So most likely they would remove them. Otherwise, they'd face tons of ongoing lawsuits and it wouldn't be a viable business plan. So that's not a good thing. Obviously, the social media companies do not want to see these protections removed. Twitter said it attempts to unilaterally erode. It threatens the future of online speech and internet freedoms. Facebook said it would, quote, Restrict more speech online, not less, and would, quote, penalize companies that choose to allow controversial speech and encourage platforms to censor anything that might offend anyone. And then Google says, quote, undermining Section 230 in this way would hurt American economy and its global leadership on Internet freedom. So obviously these companies are against anything changing with Section 230. This is what gives them the protection to host this content, and I do agree with them for the most part here. I agree with what they're saying. They're saying that they would have to censor everything, because they would be sued into oblivion if they didn't. So this would drastically change things online. I don't really think that we should remove the protections from Section 230. I don't think it would be a good move. But at the same time, I look at this tweet, and I don't think that Twitter should be putting special embeds and fact-checking politicians. I don't think that that's what Twitter should be doing. I think this gets into some dicey territory here. Now, let's take this tweet, for example. This is the first one that was fact-checked. So this is the first tweet that kind of spawned this whole issue and led to this executive order. President Trump made a tweet that was pretty much making the case that mail and ballots lead to voter fraud. That's what he was saying. He says, mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. So he's saying that mail and ballots will lead to voter fraud, and then he tweets this out. Twitter adds in the special link underneath that says get the facts about mail-in ballots has this exclamation mark when you click on this it leads you to the special Twitter fact-checking page has a goofy picture of President Trump and then it says experts say mail-in ballots are very rarely linked to voter fraud so Twitter is now fact-checking politicians so now they're the neutral platform that is just regulating content and they're in the role of fact-checking politicians This is something that I think that they're in a little bit of dicey territory here. Let's assume that Twitter is even right, that experts say mail-in ballots really don't lead to voter fraud, and that everything that Trump claimed was wrong, and Twitter correctly fact checked them. I'm not saying that's the case, but let's just assume that for a minute. Even in that scenario, I don't really think this is a good path to go down. Twitter would now have to fact check everything that every politician says correctly. They'd have to fact check correctly every single time which is a tall order to do to begin with. Fact-checking is difficult, especially with these complex, nuanced uh, political issues, because there's arguments to both sides. Sometimes there's studies that show different things, and the way that you fact-check it, it can be a little bit more complex. So that's difficult to do. Fact-checking is a difficult business to do anyways, but Twitter's now going to have to not only do that correctly every single time, but they're also going to have to fact-check evenly on both sides. Meaning, if they fact-check President Trump, a little bit more than they fact-check Vice President Biden, people are going to be upset about that. They'll think that it's biased. So Twitter is putting itself in a position where it has to fact-check every politician and fact-check them equally aggressive on both sides. It's really difficult. I don't know how they plan on doing that. How does a company go in and fact-check President Trump in the same manner with the same unbiasedness that it fact-checks Vice President Biden and all the senators and everybody else involved? I think that's a really difficult task to do and I don't think it's one Twitter should really be bringing on to itself. Here's Mark Zuckerberg expressing similar concern. But I think we've been pretty clear on, on what I think the right approach is, which is uh, that I don't think that Facebook or, or internet platforms in general should be um, arbiters of truth. I think that's a kind of a dangerous line to get down to in terms of um, deciding what is, what, what is true and what isn't. Um, and I, I think political speech... Is, is one of the most um, sensitive parts in, in, in a democracy. Um, and people should be able to see what, what politicians say. And um, there's there's a ton of scrutiny already. Pol- polit- political speech is the most scrutinized speech already by a lot of the media. Um, and I think that, that that will continue. So Zuckerberg is in disagreement with Jack Dorsey. He's in disagreement with Twitter. I get the feeling that Mark Zuckerberg does not like Twitter. He said before in private meetings that Facebook spends more on security than the total revenue of Twitter. So, you know, there are two companies that are social media companies but they're completely different in size. Facebook's like a 650 billion dollar market cap company and Twitter's like a 20 billion dollar market cap company. So, they're two completely different sizes, but Facebook is having to deal with a lot of the regulatory scrutiny that Twitter brings on. Now, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, has responded to all of this. He tweeted out his own message here saying, "Fact check There is someone ultimately accountable for our actions as a company, and that's me. Please leave our employees out of this. We'll continue to point out incorrect or disputed information about elections globally, and we'll admit to and own any mistakes we make. This does not make us an arbiter of truth. Our intention is to connect the dots of conflicting statements and show the information in dispute so people can judge for themselves. So there you have it. Jack Dorsey is not backing down. He's keeping the fact checks up on these tweets, and he says he's going to continue doing that. So we'll see where this goes. I don't know what's going to happen. The executive order is likely going to be challenged heavily in the courts. So we don't know how that's going to turn out, but I'll continue to follow it. Okay, now moving on, I got a chance to check out HBO Max. This is the new streaming service by AT&T. It's basically uh, HBO plus all of Warner Media. That's what it is. So it's their whole catalog. It's a lot more content. HBO has been known to do the strategy where unlike Netflix, Netflix does a strategy of just a lot of content. There's a lot of things to watch. Some of it good, some of it not really great. HBO was trying to do more of the strategy of having a limited amount of content, but really high quality content. That's what they were going for. Now, HBO Max, they're still trying to do the same thing where they limit it and have higher quality stuff, more blockbuster movies, you know, bigger franchise series. That's the the route that they're going. But there is a lot of it, there's over 10,000 hours of content on it. If I go through it, it looks pretty good. The streaming service is kind of what you would expect. It looks the same on the computer or the Apple TV. If you go to this section here, it has this hub where you can select exactly what library you want to watch It has things like Crunchyroll, DC, Adult Swim, you can click into any of them and then it has their entire collection. So that's pretty much how it's broken up. The streaming platform seems pretty straightforward to me. Now, there's a couple of big caveats that I see with this streaming service. And this is really where I see the AT&T, the kind of big business mentality come out. This isn't focused on consumers. This is something disappointing to see. Uh, I was hoping that this would be a smooth launch without problems like this, but they launched the service, HBO Max, without even having it available on Amazon devices or Roku devices. To give some perspective, that's 70% of the streaming player market. Amazon makes up 32%, Roku makes up 38%. So AT&T decided it was a good idea to launch their streaming service to 30% of the potential market. They didn't have this figured out beforehand. So, you know, they have their reasons why. They're trying to be harsh negotiators. But this is something where I see the business side taking precedent over the consumers. They should be focused on getting it out to consumers, having the best experience, you know, launching this product with the consumers in mind. Instead, it's focused on the business aspect. I think that that's a mistake. They say that they're trying to make the deals right now. A spokesperson said they're looking forward to reaching agreements with a few outstanding distribution partners left, including with Amazon and on par with how they provide customers access to Netflix, Disney and Hulu on fire devices. So they're in the process of these negotiations. They're probably going to be made pretty soon because... They're not going to have a successful streaming service if it's available to 30% of the market. It's just not going to work. So they'll work this out. They actually have the apps made on Amazon devices and Roku. So the apps are there. They're already made, ready to go. They just need to sign a deal. So that's what we're waiting for. But this is my main concern for AT&T. This is a company that it's a benefit. It has such a diversified business. It has a lot of different aspects to it. They have TV networks, linear television. They have internet and business services. They have pay TV, and they have wireless services, studio films, advertising, and now they have HBO Max, this new streaming service. So they have a lot of things to work with here, but running these different segments of their business requires a different line of thinking. With their wireless services, there's not a whole lot of growth there. So that's a stable portion of their business that the main focus is deriving profits. Now, with HBO Max, it's just the opposite. Rather than trying to focus on profits, they should be focused on growth. They should be focused just like Netflix on getting as many subscribers as possible pretty much at all costs. It was purely focused on the amount of subscriber growth. So that has been the metric of their success and investors will give them funding as long as they're getting that subscriber growth. I think it's difficult for a company like AT&T that has these segments of their businesses that are stable telecom portion to change from that type of thinking to the new type of growth thinking like Netflix, but that's what they need to do. And them launching the service to only 30% of the market seems like they're focused on the profits a little too much. So that's my main concern with it. We'll see how this goes. Hopefully they can make a deal quickly with Amazon and Roku because they need to get subscriber growth. All right, let's get to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. You can also message me on Instagram or Twitter. Both the links of those are in the description of this video. The first one's from Luke. He says, hi, Joseph. I'm currently 17, and I've been watching your show for about a year now and wanted to start by saying it has single-handedly inspired me to start investing, even if it's only a small amount. And I love how informative and interesting your show is. I do have a question about a metaphor. I've heard you mention often of a man walking his dog in a park, comparing the man to the economy and the dog to the stock market. I've thought of this as true for a while now, but the extreme downturn of the economy does not seem represented in the stock market and doesn't make sense in terms of this metaphor. It almost seems to me that the owner of the dog let go of his leash and lost his dog. Ha ha. Do you still think this metaphor holds true? Or possibly that a stock market will fall to match the economy. Or has your viewpoint on this metaphor changed? Thanks, Luke. Well, I like the additional part you added to this analogy, that the dog owner, which is the economy, has accidentally let go of the leash and the dog has now run away. So the economy and the stock market are now way far away from each other. And that seems to be the case. I think there's a couple factors contributing to this. The question you ask is, are they going to come back together? Is this like a new change? Is the stock market and the economy just two different things that go in different directions now. Let me go through a couple thoughts on this. First of all, we have the Fed. Obviously, that plays a big role in asset prices. We have stocks and bonds. The Fed is buying everything, and their balance sheet is now above $7 trillion. So that's a lot of quantitative easing. That's a name for going and buying different assets. And when you have a lot of buyers for something, that makes the price go up. So that's one reason I think the stock market's going up. The economy really isn't affected by that quite as much as the stock market and the price of assets. But the second reason, and I think this is the biggest reason of why the stock market and the economy have gone in two completely different directions. They don't even seem to be related is because of the specific nature of this downturn. We have a pandemic and a government mandated shutdown. That's the thing that we're facing right now. What type of companies, what type of of businesses does that affect? Mom and pop shops, little places where you have restaurants in town, you have hair salons. Uh, you have diners. Those are the type of places that have been shut down as a response to this. Did it really affect Facebook? It affected them in a positive way. More people are stuck at home on Facebook and Instagram. So Facebook it benefited. Look at Apple. Is it really affecting them all that much? They might have reduced iPhone sales for a while, but people are still going to be at home using their devices, downloading apps. They're still doing fine in the midst of this. We have YouTube with Google. More people are probably using their products right now. Microsoft, they're doing fine. It's all cloud software. They have long-term contracts with lots of businesses. So they're doing okay. We have Amazon, which businesses has been great for them. They've had to hire 100,000 people. Amazon is where everybody's buying everything now because they can't go to their local stores. And these companies, these five companies make up a significant portion of the stock market. Just to give an idea of how big these companies are, and how much of a portion of the stock market they make up. Let's take a look at the S&P 500. These top 5 companies in their weighting make up the equivalent portion of the bottom 282 companies. So, these 5 companies, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook make up the same amount of the S&P 500 as the bottom 282 companies. That's how big these are. So, yes, you're seeing a divergence here. These 5 companies, they don't really reflect the whole state of the economy but they make up a significant portion of the stock market. Um, And then another factor that I would mention is the stock market is forward-looking. People invest based off of future earnings. Most people buy stocks because they want to hold them for 10 years. Uh, Economic news is backwards-looking. So you're, you're seeing two different sides here. Most people buying today, even though it seems crazy, they're buying because they want to own things for the next 10 years. So I don't see any need for the stock market and the economy to come back together immediately. I think that that's a little naive to expect that what I think is more likely if GDP doesn't improve over the course of the next three, four, five years in the US, and it looks like it's going to be a long term growth problem with the US, it just never recovers, we never get back on a path of growing. Absolutely, the prices of these big tech companies, once their earnings get reduced, they'll come back down in value. So eventually, I think that they will meet back up, but I wouldn't hold your breath on it. Anthony says, hey, Joseph, I've been watching your show since last June when you had about 7,000 subs and have almost watched every single video you have posted on your channel. I appreciate the support there, Anthony. He says, you have inspired me to start my own investing journey last year and will not be stopping ever. That's the attitude right there. That right there is a good example of why the stock market and the economy aren't related. I started investing. I'm not going to stop ever. Some people have that attitude. It just goes back to that last question. But anyways, not to distract from it. Um, He says, my question is not investing related. And I know that you are a developer. I'm currently investing my quarantine time into a coding boot camp. Do you have any tips for a future developer and thoughts on your current job market as a software developer? Thank you and keep up the great work. I hope you never stop. Anthony, good job using your time to do something productive. Learning coding is definitely a productive thing to do. As far as my tips, my thoughts on the current job market, I don't know too much about the current job market. I think it's pretty good. I don't think most software companies have been affected too much by what's going on right now. And I think the future outlook for software development is really good. I think it's a good field to be in. Uh, As far as my tips, I would not focus on the highest paying salary or the highest paying job offer you can get. What I would do is focus solely on who you're going to learn the most from. Look for the best type of developers, the best type of situation for you to be in, and you will rapidly increase your value in the marketplace if you can get into a good role. That's what I looked for when I first started doing development. Uh, I was working on it four to six hours a day on my own time doing my own projects. And then I got into a role where I could have paid them just to do this role. I was working in a free internship. So it's an unpaid internship. And I was happy to be doing that because I was working with people that it was not worth their time to have me work for them for free. It wasn't worth their time. It was a situation where they're so knowledgeable, they're so good at what they're doing, that I could have paid to be there. So uh, that's what I would look for. Situations where you can be around people that you can learn a tremendous amount from. Don't worry about your initial salary. It's not a big deal. You can change that anytime as a software developer. Anytime you want, you can go to a different company if you have the skill set, if you have the experience. Getting the experience is the tough part. Getting the salary is not the tough part, the experience is. So focus on the experience first, get your foot in the door. Then from there, you should be able to to make any type of leaps and up your pay and do all that type of stuff that you want. Once you have the experience, you're pretty set. All right, well, I'm gonna go ahead and end this episode there. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And again, there's links in the description to view my portfolio, to check out the Discord, all that type of fun stuff. So you can look at that as well. Otherwise, I will see you guys next time.